Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. And I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. I'm Lucas Rappel, and today I'll be speaking with Lydia Barnett. Lydia is a historian of early modern Europe at Northwestern University, whose research brings the history of science into dialogue with gender history, religious history, and environmental history in a transnational context. Lydia recently published her first book with Johns Hopkins University Press, entitled After the Flood, Imagining the Global Environment in Early Modern Europe. This remarkable project follows elite and popular discourse about Noah's flood from the late 16th to the early 18th century. In so doing, Lydia is able to show that human beings have long grappled with the vexing question about our impact on the global environment. Even more compelling still is the way that Barnett's book shows how religious faith and devotion offered a language through which early modern Europeans could think through their capacity to intervene in and change the natural world often with disastrous consequences. Or as she herself puts it, quote, in the hands of Protestant and Catholic writers from across Europe and its American colonies, the biblical story of Noah's flood became a vehicle for imagining the power of sin to wreck the world. After the flood is a truly eye-opening account that provides much-needed historiographical depth to our present anxieties about anthropogenic climate change. I cannot recommend it highly enough. Welcome, Lydia, to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, and congratulations on the publication of After the Flood, Imagining the Global Environment in Early Modern Europe. Thank you so much, Lucas. I'm delighted that the book is out and so happy to talk to you today. I really enjoyed reading this book, and uh, yeah, it's, it's an excellent, uh, it's, it's really well written, and, but especially I thought I enjoyed reading it because it's so thought-provoking. And I think this is something that's kind of uh, true for this is something that early modern history of science, I think, does really well. And I, as a modernist, I think I can say probably better than more recent uh, kind of histories of the more recent past, which is to really give us a kind of perspective on our own time that f- from a different perspective, right? Sort of give us a new way of thinking about something we're going through now. And for and I thought that your book does that in a really exemplary way. So I wanted to start by asking you a question that's actually inspired by the epilogue, where you kind of 
look forward a little bit. And that is, you make this really fascinating argument in the epilogue that you also gesture towards in the introduction, but I think it comes through most strongly in the epilogue about how the Enlightenment, so your book takes place, as I recall, mostly in the 16th and 17th century. But in the epilogue, you sort of look forward into the 18th and 19th century and to the invention of what's often called deep time. So this kind of new way of imagining the immensely long history of the earth and its various inhabitants. Uh, a concept that really comes to the fore in the late 18th and early 19th century with people like uh, Buffon and Cuvier. And you make this really fascinating argument how the invention of deep time and a kind of secular deep time in the late 18th, early 19th century, more or less sort of expelled human beings from the earth and its history and kind of created this cleavage between natural history and human history. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about how people prior to that sort of in the 16th and 17th century understood their place in the world and in particular their kind of place in the history of the world. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I really wanted to do with the book was to provide a kind of deep, deep, deeper and longer durational history of um, features of scientific and environmental thought that often start within the late 18th century with the discovery or rediscovery or invention of deep time. And I mean, not to say that that wasn't important. Uh, obviously, it was hugely important in terms of the progress of the earth sciences, particularly. But I think when it's used as part of like an intellectual genealogy of anthropocentric thinking, for lack of a better word, I feel like it's a little bit of a red herring. And so what, one of the things I really wanted to do in the book was to show how in many ways the kind of um, biblical chronology and uh, kind of Christian universalist worldview that shaped so much of Christian European um, thinking about the planet and its history um, in many ways, yeah, like promoted um, uh, a kind of thinking about, well, I think really encouraged um, people who were studying the earth to think about earth history as always already intersecting with human history. Um, and, and that's particularly, and I think that's also an explanation for why there was this kind of obsession with Noah's flood as the centerpiece of histories of the earth um, from the late 16th century through the early to mid 18th century, right? I mean, that's been, uh, I'm hardly the first you know, historian of the earth sciences to notice that obsession. And I think it's usually been uh, clocked up to, um, uh, you know, just the kind of the religiosity of scientific practitioners in that age. And that's certainly true. Um, but, you know, I think one of the things that the flood did for people was to say that, you know, nature's history impinged on human history and vice versa um, in, in kind of inextricable and catastrophic ways. Um, so, uh, so in some ways, I think the short, um, a, a young earth as implied by um, a biblical chronology um, promoted that kind of um, thinking about the intersections of natural and human history, that deep time in positing uh, a long planetary history in which humans played no role kind of broke that relationship apart um, in a way that made sense for 19th century geology, but was something that kind of had to be recovered uh, in the 20th. Yeah, exactly. I thought that was just such an interesting insight that this current obsession that many of us have with you know, inhabiting the so-called age of the Anthropocene, that this is, in fact, in many ways, a kind of rediscovery of the human place in the natural world. Maybe, or yeah, or just that, you know, that there's been a kind of pendulum swing and that, um, that yeah, I think in, in many ways, the, the kind of call to arms of um, 
uh, particularly like the Chakrabarian call to arms of saying, you know, like you know, there's been this longstanding split between natural and human history, and now we need to um, bridge that divide. I mean, on the one hand, I couldn't agree more, but what I would you know, add to that is simply that in some ways that that artificial cleavage between natural and human history is like a product of, um, you know, institutionalization and professionalization in the 19th century research university. And it holds true far less so in periods before that. So in some ways, it's a it's a more recent cleavage that we're calling to overcome. Yeah. And, and another argument that I took you to be making is that it's also that cleavage is also in part a product of secularization so that we often think of religion as something that is at least i often think of it as kind of promoting a kind of human exceptionalism but in this case at least your book made me think about it in very different ways thanks yeah um yeah i mean obviously another i mean particularly the my decision to frame this book as a long 17th century project and to begin in the 16th century and in the age of the reformations and the catholic reformation specifically is to try to uh, really put religious thought and particularly like confessional polemics at the heart of um, environmental thinking and planetary thinking. Yeah, so there's one kind of particular um, aspect of kind of religious experience of many Europeans in the early modern period that I wanted to ask you about in particular, and that's the role that sin and people is thinking about kind of humanity's failing and its moral depravity. So how people thinking in a, maybe we can even say kind of obsession with human sinfulness, what role that played in early modern Europeans, um, the way they often imagined the history of the earth and especially the genesis of Noah's flood. And you have this particular case that you look at pretty closely near the beginning of the book, which is a, a, a just this fascinating book written by an Italian apothecary, I take it, Camilla Erculiani, called Letters on Natural Philosophy. So I wonder if you could just talk a little bit about who, who Camilla Erculiani was and what kind of theory of the earth that she posited and how the role that kind of human sin played in her understanding of the history of the earth and Noah's flood. Sure. Um... Yeah, so uh, so she's my main kind of Reformation era figure. Uh, I'll talk about her just in a moment. If I could like speak really briefly to that first um, question you asked about um, the importance of sin to this kind of early modern way of imagining the global environment. I mean, you're right; it comes directly out of um, Reformation era obsession with, uh, I mean, preoccupation with sinfulness and uh, on on both in both Protestant and Catholic worlds. Um, and I think that this kind of uh, preoccupation with um, both the kind of depth of human sinfulness as well as the projects for spiritual renewal is one of the things that directed scholarly and scientific attention back to this key biblical episode of Noah's flood, right? Which is all about kind of the wages of sin in the natural world. Uh, and then the recursive effects of that sinfulness back on humanity itself. So, um, so the way that that, and I think that's kind of the major way that I see the reformations as being so crucial for, um, the, the kind of emergence of this kind of planetary environmental thinking in the, in the late 16th century, if not earlier, though, I would say, you know, please, I would love for a medievalist to come along and tell me that I'm wrong about this and to find even earlier. There's precedence. always a precedent. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, so call for medievalists. Please come and come and find earlier um, examples of this. I would I would love to see it because um, I'm sure they're probably there in some form. So, but it's I, I decided to begin the book with this absolutely astonishing source that um, uh, has really only recently been rediscovered by an Italian woman apothecary who lived in Padua in the late 16th century, Camilla Erculiani. Um, and here I really have to give credit to. Um, the work of uh, primarily Eleonora Carinci, as well as Paula Finland and Hannah Marcus and other people who have begun to bring uh, this text to light. There are only four copies in the world. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was probably a very small print one when it was first published in 1584 um, in Krakow, actually, though she lived in Padua. And um, it's, you know, I think really an attempt, um, you know, to uh, begin to use begin to use the flood as a way of thinking about the human impact on the natural world and recursively the uh, the impact of natural catastrophe on uh, humanity on a kind of planetary scale. Um, so it's I mean it's this really weird book. Um, it's it's kind of a, uh, epistolary. It's no, it's a, a series of letters. Format. Yeah, it is. It's epistolary. Um, they're addressed. We don't know whether she actually sent them, if they were actually exchanged in manuscript before then being printed. Though I would say that's a common feature of a lot of the work on Earth history that I, you know, it was pretty typical for this long 17th century period um, to to write one's works, uh, put put you know, uh, to put down on paper one's thoughts about um, the earth and its history in the form of a dialogue and often first in the form of a letter. I think it really, um, well, this might be jumping the gun, but, you know, shows the importance of the Republic of Letters, basically, uh, and the importance of like long distance um, exchange of natural knowledge to knowing the earth in this period. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's written as a series of four letters um, and it doesn't offer a kind of straightforward narrative. It's more kind of free flowing um, thoughts on a whole host of topics, but it includes this really fascinating um, kind of speculation about um, the way in which human bodies in particular um, caused the flood. So she sort of has a theory about um uh, she posits a kind of natural balance between water and earth as elements uh, on the earth and then says, you know, points to biblical evidence of human gigantism before the flood, as well as human longevity. So thinking about like Methuselah, right, people like, you know, the biblical patriarchs living for eight or 900 years, and uh, there were giants on the earth in those days. It's another passage from Genesis. So, so basically thinking about human bodies um, before the flood as growing, um, as basically taking up too much elemental earth uh, is what she, and so she basically posited that once there got to be too many people on the earth and they got to be too big and tall and also too sinful, though she doesn't really specify exactly what she thinks is that is the material and spiritual connection, but she, she seems to indicate that there's some connection. Uh, then basically the um, element of water overwhelmed the element of the earth um, and that's what caused the flood. And then the flood, by killing off all of those gigantic uh, long-lived people who were kind of taking up too much elemental earth, basically corrected that elemental imbalance and returned the earth in their bodies to the general fund of elemental earth on the planet. Um, and that's kind of restored this, this kind of natural balance uh, by basically um, um, genociding almost all human beings. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah, it struck me as almost a kind of, maybe this is wrong to say, but I don't know, but almost a kind of humoral theory mm-hmm. of earth homeostasis yeah. or something yeah. like that. Yeah, well, I, mean, it's, I mean, she's definitely still working in a kind of Aristotelian elemental framework. Um, and it's, she doesn't explicitly talk about it in terms of humors, but certainly in, the, in that kind of um, Renaissance medicinal way of thinking about um, uh, the balance of different elements as the thing that promotes uh, the health of a particular human individual and a disequilibrium as the thing that promotes illness or death. I mean, she's definitely working within that framework, but she's scaling it up beyond the level of the individual human body and thinking about it on a planetary scale, um, which is, I think, what the flood does for her. Yeah, and that sin might itself be a kind of disequilibrium, perhaps. I don't know, but that's just, yeah, seemed like such a rich sort of thought. So I was curious about kind of, in some ways, maybe the flip side of this history, which is at the same time as there, you document this obsession with human sinfulness and its relationship to the flood and global, what we might call global climate change, you also have a really fascinating discussion on the possibility for redemption and salvation. And here in particular, I'm thinking of a book that you talk about by John Woodward called Essay Toward a Natural History, excuse me, Towards the Natural History of the Earth. And so I'm wondering if you could just tell tell our listeners a little bit about um, the way that Woodward, it's kind of the history that he presented of, of the Earth and how he understood the uh, capacity for human toil effort and envisioned a kind of political economy, kind of agrarian political economy that held out a possibility for sort of a planetary salvation or something like that. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so kind of fast forwarding um, like 100 years into the future from Erculiani and moving from Italy to England. Uh, so um, John Woodward's essay Towards the Natural History of the Earth has, I mean, I think kind of long and rightfully enjoyed a kind of place in the histories of early modern geology along with um, uh, his contemporaries Thomas Burnett and John Ray and William Whiston. Uh, and I, I focused on him in, in this middle chapter that's about kind of this late 17th century England as a, as a rich site for um, this kind of mode of global imagining. So Woodward is, was really interesting to me for exactly the same reason that you pointed out, that he um, uh, basically agrees with his um, British contemporaries that, you know, sin caused the flood and the flood ruined the world. And that was a kind of well-deserved form of um, uh, of punishment and that people in his, you know, late 17th century present still kind of labored under the, um, spiritual and material, uh, burdens imposed by the flood and that still characterized the kind of post-Diluvian world. But as you say, he paired it with, um, the possibility for redemption and kind of collective salvation, um, so in particular, he felt that the main thing that the flood had done to punish people other than kill off almost everybody, but the way that it, it continued to have um, effects after the flood had subsided was by uh, changing the chemistry of the world's soil uh, and making it much less fertile. Um, so so soil, soil sterility was this thing that then gave birth to agriculture um, and uh, promoted agricultural labor, which he has this really ambivalent kind of reading on, um, which I think it makes, makes total sense in a, in a 17th century British religious context, where he, both, he thinks that agricultural labor is both punishment for sin, but also the means to salvation. So... Um, uh, so he basically says in some ways that the flood was a good thing and actually a sign of God's grace because it forced people to work, uh, 
uh, and particularly to labor in the soil. Uh, and, and he felt that moving forward, that that was kind of the best um, pathway to kind of collective redemption. Yeah, amazing. So another aspect of your book that I wanted to ask you about was there's a really interesting kind of gender history and also racial history that runs throughout it. So let's maybe start with the first of those. So can you just talk a little bit more about kind of how gender plays into the story that you've written here? Sure. Um, Yeah, so I'm going back to Erculiani really quickly. I mean, I was so... um, delighted to find out about her. Um, in some ways, it was the last part. It was, she's the, uh, forms the basis for the first chapter, but it was the last part of the book that I wrote. Um, and uh, I was delighted to find out about her and delighted to be able to begin um, this, uh, this kind of history of the early modern earth sciences with a woman philosopher. Um, and on the one hand, she's... Um, she's kind of the first person um, of any gender or country that we currently know of to treat the Noah's flood, this biblical story as a subject for natural philosophy. Um, but I also think that her, um, her gendered subject position really mattered to the way that she conceived of the relationship between people in the, and the planet. And interestingly, not in like a stereotyped feminine, like the earth is our mother kind of way, like not really in like a Carol Merchant kind of way. I was just going to say, right, Carol yeah. Merchant is. Yeah. yeah. So, I, I mean, so I make, you know, what's, I mean, a, a, uh, I mean, she's frustrating because her book itself is so kind of cryptic and because we don't really have anything else um, uh, that she wrote, but it seems to me like sh- there, there are at least hints um, in the book and in some surviving correspondence um, with a, a, a male philosopher in Venice of whom his half of the correspondence survives. Uh, and so um, I read those alongside her book and made an argument that I think she, she had not, even though her, her perspective on environmental destruction is planetary, um, I, I, I think that she blames men specifically for causing the flood. Um, so it's, it's, you know, so it's thinking about humanity on a planetary scale, but not an undifferentiated human species. So she has a kind of, well, she, she makes an explicit gendered critique in the introduction to the book where she complains about how, um, childbirth and housework are taking time away from her ability to do philosophy. So first of all, that's fascinating. Um, yeah. uh, the 16th century woman, um, uh, yeah, complaining about the, how the feminized labor that is expected of her is taking, taking away her ability to, to do kind of intellectual labor. Um, but there, um, uh, she, she uses the phrase, you know, like men's bodies throughout and this, this kind of um, half surviving correspondence that we have in which she, she suggests that men are more sinful than women and that women have been unduly punished um, by both kind of religious laws and by possibly also by divine punishment for things, for men's sinfulness that women didn't share in. But there's a kind of gendered critique there of women's subjection, subjection to um uh, to punishments that they don't actually merit. And it's, so it seems like she, she's at least potentially saying in this book that it was 
um, men in particular who grew big and giant and were responsible for the sin that caused the flood and that women were unduly suffering uh, as a result of things that men had done. So that's just totally thought that she had. So it's not just that, oh, you know, it's amazing that a woman was writing a work of um, philosophy. I mean, it is on its own, right? It's currently the only known original work of natural philosophy by a woman in Renaissance Italy. So it's just amazing enough on its own, but it's even better in that she has a kind of gendered critique built into her, both her account of herself as a philosopher and into her narration of the Earth's history. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. So is the argument that it was only male bodies that became gigantic? Is that why it was male bodies that caused the flood? It seems like, I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm, has, I don't want to put words in her mouth. It's hard to Again, say, okay. It's so, it's so cryptic, but um, <laughs> uh, yeah, she, she doesn't come out and say that explicitly. I, I was wondering if it, you could, I'm not sure this, is, but I was, you could also imagine perhaps that there's something. There's a kind of commentary here about something like the reproduct the, the the vision of reproductive labor or something like that. That men maybe kind of um, this is a very stereotypical view, obviously. But that kind of you know men sort of indiscriminately spread their seed, and then women are responsible for actually bringing children to term. Yeah, yeah. That's I, I, don't know. I think <laughs> that's a, that's an interesting possibility. It's it's definitely plausible. Um, anyway, that. that just absolute armchair speculation yeah. on my well, part. No, I, mean, this is, I think it's a general call for more scholarship on this incredible text. Um, maybe somebody else will figure it out. <laughs> so the other uh, kind of question I wanted to ask is about um, the, the way that um, early modern Europeans' understanding of Noah's flood was entangled not just with was not just gendered, but also entangled with racial and indeed often racist theories of human difference, yeah, yeah. in particular as a result of uh, kind of European imperialism, especially in your, in your book, you talk about kind of uh, colonization of the new world. So I wonder if you could kind of talk about the role that Native Americans played and the kind of challenge that Native Americans posed to European conceptions of the Earth's history. Yeah, definitely. Thanks. So, um, so I have um, one chapter that surveys... Um, uh, kind of across the entire time period of the book, across the long 17th century, um, theories about the repopulation of the earth after the flood. So, you know, scientists and scholars writing these histories about global migrations in the generations after the flood, which are, I think, you know, ultimately an attempt to give an, a historical account of global human diversity in their early modern present. And, um, you know, and on the one hand, these these theories were um, 
I think have maybe been seen uh, by contemporary scholars as um, either either kind of neutrally not racist or possibly even anti-racist insofar as they're explicitly um, monogenetic um, accounts of human origins. And so in that sense, they're very different from the explicitly racist polygenetic theories of human origins that became prevalent in European and Euro-American science in the 19th century. Um, But one of the things that I I try to do to kind of uh, add some complexity to that idea in the book is to show how uh, the particular accounts that early modern scholars gave um, of kind of how and where people traveled uh, and particularly how um, the ancestors of indigenous Americans traveled to the Americas um, after the flood were intended, uh, I think sometimes even deliberately and explicitly to, to articulate a, Um, racial hierarchy within a kind of global vision of a single human family tree. Um, And this particularly jumped out at me in noticing how preoccupied early modern scholars were with the question of whether or not the ancestors of Indigenous Americans came over, um, traveled across the Pacific or the Atlantic. Um, And, and, uh, uh, and whether they whether they came by boat or over a land bridge, and generally they decided land bridge because they felt that uh, the ability to traverse an ocean was a uh, modern, recent, and uniquely European civilizational accomplishment. Um, and it's all. And you know, side note, it's been fascinating to me to see um, the increasing popularity and prevalence of. Um, uh, contemporary theories that the ancestors of indigenous Americans came by boat or like across like a kelp highway. Um, so on the one hand, I, I kind of love to see these, some of my historical actors being uh, proven wrong centuries after the fact, though another way of thinking about it is that these early investigations exerted a long durational um, effect on, in terms of um, you know, European and Euro-American social science and the natural sciences on this particular research question um, in a way that was deeply racist and unfortunate. But anyway, sidebar. Uh, so going back to, oh, right, um, the uh, the debate about, uh, so, right, so given the fact that there was a kind of collective decision that um, they couldn't have come by boat and must have come across some vanished land bridge, whether or not the land bridge stretched across the Pacific Ocean or the Atlantic, and um, and I kind of show over the course of the 17th century and into the 18th in particular, a kind of consensus forming that it must have been across the Pacific world. And I think that a large part of that motivation was that, you know, the implications of an Atlantic Ocean crossing would make indigenous Americans the direct ancestors of Europeans, um, which I think was really uncomfortable for them, uh, for um, people who wanted to find ideological justification for European colonialism, um, uh, for imperialism and for settler colonialism uh, at the same time period. It's saying, oh, you know, like we're conquering our own ancestors and kind of close kin uh, that uh, they, they kind of needed to um, uh, other them a little bit more. And so there's this kind of convergence uh, around um uh, from the mid 17th century onwards to, to, um, positing, um, either, um, like usually like central Asian, um, 
or far northern East Asian um, nomadic and in European views, primitive peoples as the most immediate ancestors um, of indigenous Americans. Uh, and um, in a way that kind of, so in other words, they gave historical accounts that produced the maximal like historical and geographic distance between themselves and um, indigenous Americans. Uh, um, in order to justify or to, yeah, to make European imperialism possible, morally permissible, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, At at the same time, I was really amazed by this idea that, so this debate between monogenesis or polygenesis, that whether there is fundamentally one human species or whether there are several points of origin for humanity, that it was also at the same time, so while it was important for there to be maximal distance between Native Americans and Europeans um, coming to North America, it was also essential to posit that nonetheless, that that Native Americans belong to the same lineage as Europeans, because that made them, that made it um, necessary to evangelize, to, to send Christian missionaries to North America. Exactly, exactly. Right. So there's some really early um, polygenetic speculation by people like Paracelsus. So uh, in the kind of decades immediately after uh, the Columbian voyages, um, and those are kind of pretty quickly dismissed. Um, not because Europeans weren't racist, but I think because they felt that polygenism was a threat to, to Christian evangelism in the Americas and saying instead, oh no, you know, indigenous Americans uh, are part of um, our history, our, our, you know, biblical history as world history um, means that uh, seemed, seemed to European Christian missionaries in particular, I think a more promising um, grounds for the possibility of of conversion. Yeah, so that na- if Native Americans descended from the same ancestors as Europeans, then they also they too had to be saved. Yeah, and it was a way of papering over the violence of of colonialism and evangelism too. Right, is to say, um, oh, we're just reminding them of their own lost and unremembered faith, rather than we're forcibly converting them to our faith. Yeah. Amazing. So the, the kind of final question, or maybe penultimate question I wanted to ask you is um, about, so the theory or the history of Noah's flood that you document here is very much a global history in the sense that people in early modern Europe understood it to have been, understood Noah's flood to have been a global event. And so this is, is kind of a follow-up question to something you alluded to earlier when you spoke briefly about the Republic of Letters. So I just wanted to ask you about how people who inhabited a very specific and particular location in the world sought to project themselves and project their imaginations globally and the kinds of networks, both correspondence networks, but also networks of specimen collectors and fossil collectors and so on and so forth that were established and mobilized in order to kind of bring the world home in a sense or to kind of create a world in miniature uh, within the confines of a very specific and often quite local uh, circumstance in early modern Europe. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're right. I mean, I think um, projecting is absolutely right. And it's a word that I use a lot in the book in order to grapple with the fact that, you know, um, they were trying to write global history or world history, but they were doing it from a very particular and very limited standpoint. 
um, both, you know, in the kind of trivial sense that they were doing it from one particular point on the globe. So obviously their perspective on the world was informed by just their, you know, um, it's a very local perspective. The very yeah, by their their physical situation at the you know far western edge of the Eurasian landmass, um, but was also of course affected by their positionality as um, white European um, men and in some cases women. Um, and so you know I do try in the book to bring out the kind of provincialism of this particular mode of writing global history. Um, Obviously, in the sense that it was that it was very explicitly Christian, um, it was sometimes uh, um, uh, explicitly uh, Catholic or Anglican, or um, uh, and that. But that I mean, that was also I mean, to maybe to think too about to address your question about the role of of social networks in the Republic of Letters in this. I mean, they, um, you know, this was a group of Europeans who aspired to know the globe, uh, to write um, uh, a truly universal history of the planet, um, but who um, not, kind of not only were limited by their, their um, social positionality, but were also limited just by a lack of data. Um, there, was, there were really real empirical limits to what they knew about the rest of the world. And the Republic of Letters was um, a kind of like partial solution to that. I mean, the, I think like, like, right. So, you know, what I said earlier about the fact that so many of uh, the works on the history of the earth in this time period were written as a series of letters, um, I think really testifies to um, both the kind of social importance of information exchange. um, But even like, I think as an index to me uh, more deeply of the fact that it registers at least some sense that they knew that they had to get outside of the particular part of Europe that they were in and even out of Europe more generally in order to write a truly global account of, of nature and humanity. Um, but at the same time, the Republic of Letters wasn't global in this time period. They said it was, right? They, they made big claims. About, it was aspirationally global. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, so, I mean, so part of it is, I mean, I think there was to some extent a genuine desire to, um, to know the earth beyond Europe and to collect data and information that was you know, relevant from, um, from beyond Europe. Though, as I... Um, show in that fourth chapter, I mean, what that meant in practice was most of the um, the correspondence that they and, you know, specimens and data that they managed to collect came from uh, Europe or Europe's colonies in the Americas. And, you know, sometimes from uh, also from um, missionary or commercial networks that stretched um, uh, in the Pacific world as well. But I mean, it was really far from actually global um, and I think they kind of knew that, which I guess I, I maybe see the kind of um, like kind of hyperbolic statements uh, that you see from the late 17th and early 18th centuries in particular about how the Republic of Letters is a network that includes all people and it stretches across the entire world as being almost a kind of, I mean, it's, it's uh, as, as insisting to the contrary, something that they were actually deeply uncomfortable with. 
It's like um, an expression of anxiety almost. Yeah, I do. I see it as a kind of register of, uh, it's, it's a kind of like hysterical protestation, I guess, uh, that in some sense they, they knew that they were writing world histories without a global data set. Um, and particularly without a truly global network of correspondence. And so I guess I think that's one of the other things that biblical history did for them, right? Like, like it is another kind of provincialist world history, right? I mean, um, in a way that's also deeply violent, right? I mean, it's explicitly um, uh, kind of um, disregarding the cultural and religious and historical traditions of other non-Christian, non-European peoples and saying, you know, whether you know it or not, you're actually part of this history that's recorded in our sacred text. Uh, and this is actually, um, you know, a, a true, though not complete account um, of the history of the entire planet and of all peoples. Um, and so in some ways, being, being limited, <laughs> being Christian, being European, they would, according to this framework, um, gave them a kind of epistemic privilege to write world history, if indeed, you know, um, the Bible was the ground, if indeed biblical history was world history, which is why, you know, somebody like Isaac LaPerere, who basically says, no, you know, the biblical history is just the history of the Jews, um, you know, gets gets thrown into prison and, and forced to convert and called in front of the Pope and so on, because he's kind of calling out, I see him, uh, you know, the, the provincialism um, of these, of the kind of pretension to writing a truly global history. Yeah, I just thought that was, so interesting for all sorts of reasons, but one of which is it also struck me as perhaps a kind of cautionary tale for us today in the sense that there's so much um, excitement and interest and almost kind of moral compulsion, especially I think among historians of science at the moment to write a more global history of science, but just more broadly also in economic history, you see it as well, kind of global histories of capitalism and so on, that we ourselves are kind of committing some of these errors. And so in your book, I thought that was, it was just so nice to see the way that you kind of write about global history and and its pretensions rather than seeking to necessarily engage in it yourself or kind of a kind of critical global history, perhaps something like that. Yeah, no, I, I like that. And I think, um, uh, yeah, I mean, one, one way that, you know, I hope this book might be useful to other people is that I do see it as part of the story of a kind of much longer intellectual genealogy of global history which, you know, kind of like thinking about um, climate and like thinking about people as environmental agents is similarly not new. Um, uh, it has a much longer and deeper history than historians who are now, as you say, you know, kind of making this clarion call to global history typically acknowledge. So, um, yeah, I mean, I'm not, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't intend it as a cautionary tale for global historians, but uh, I suppose you could, you could read it that way. I mean, I, I think I was thinking of it more in terms of a cautionary tale for um, uh, kind of species level thinking in uh, accounts of um, uh, the human impact on the global environment now. Um, right. I mean, and that's in some ways that's um, I mean, it's a critique that's already been very well levied by by historians and other social scientists to say that um, uh, talking about the entire human species as the um, agents of anthropogenic global climate change, um, as well as the um, the its victims um really effaces the radical inequalities in both responsibility for and subjection to um, the effects of climate change and other assorted anthropogenic environmental harms. 
Um, and so, I mean, other people have already, you know, pointed out those, you know, those inequalities and historical responsibility for and contemporary responsibility for, you know, the, the, the geography of carbon footprints and so on. And so I guess I was thinking that one thing that, you know, that this book might, you know, contribute beyond the field of early modern studies um, would be a kind of intellectual genealogy of where that human species level thinking comes from in the first place. Um, I think it comes from this moment and uh, from this particularly religious way of accounting for um, uh, the idea of kind of humanity as a planetary force. Yeah, I mean, I think that is a really powerful intervention. So let's end the interview there. So thank you so much, Lydia, for joining us today. And congratulations again on the publication of your new book. Thank you. Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.